in grade six, we were at camp and she sat up in her bed and screamed party people <laughs> in her sleep. She screamed what? Party people. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of Sometimes She Bought a Slaps. I'm Mac. I'm Jubes. And today's episode is our book club, mm-hmm. our long-awaited one. It's um, this month we chose to read Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker, and it's unlocking the power of sleep and dreams. Yeah. And it was fascinating. It was so good. So good. So good. Um, um, and as you may notice, we are coming at you a little bit differently. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Michaela is not at home, I guess. And mm, so I guess. we, I guess. <laughs> so we're, we're not sure. Usually, <laughs> people might not know just by looking at your background. Oh, I guess that's true. Yeah. But yeah, no, Jubes and I are not together. We are only together in spirit and so if things are a little weird that's why (laughs) it's so weird because it's like hey i'm ready to record like scs like okay and then i'm like this is weird because i'm hearing your voice and i'm seeing you on screen but i'm still haven't processed that it's like not real (laughs) i'm surprised you didn't go into the studio you didn't want to live i know right i had it all set up because i recorded yesterday too so i just left it all here Mm. which is nice yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I have 3,000 words in my book document and Mac has 2,300. So um, we're just going to get started because we've got a lot of information about this book. Yeah. When we chose this book, like I bought it as like um, an additional thing so I would get free shipping. <laughs> I was oh, like, really? oh, that's easy. <laughs> that's why I bought it. I was like, That's oh, amazing. I need X number of dollars for free shipping. Otherwise, I'm paying the same amount that I would buy for another book on shipping. <laughs> and so I was like, I'm going to get another book. And so when I was scrolling um, chapters, I was like, oh, this seems really interesting. And so I just bought it. And then when James and I were looking through our book collection, I was like, how about this one? And we didn't realize yeah. how hefty it was going to be when we well, pulled it. <laughs> Michaela gave it to me at like middle of June and she's like, how does it look? And I like opened it up and the font is so small. And I was like, oh, (laughs) this is going to take a minute. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So we'll dive into it for that reason. Yeah. So we split it up and I took the um, first eight chapters or the first two parts and then Mac took the last date and the last two parts. Mm-hmm. And so um, the first part is called this thing called sleep. And the first chapter is to sleep, as in like to sleep or not to sleep. That is the question. Mm-hmm. Um, and so basically, it's just an introduction of what the book will be talking about. And then he also mentions that sleep can be used as an early test to see if someone will develop dementia. And if they will, what kind of dementia will they have? And so that was kind of one of the first experiments that he talked about igniting his passion for sleep. And what a hook, man. I was like, (laughs) okay, (laughs) 
I'm in. I'm invested. Well, dementia and Alzheimer's like run in my family. Like I'm almost guaranteed to have one or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now I'm like my like inner hypochondria chondriac just kind of came out a little bit reading this episode too because i was like i really have to sleep <laughs> well because you you have such issues with sleep sometimes too right well yeah so i was like this is super fun and so that's <laughs> all the notes i took for the first chapter <clears throat> and so the second chapter is caffeine jet lag and melatonin losing and gaining control of your sleep rhythm and so this one was very interesting because he talks a lot about the circadian rhythm in people. And then he found, um, or there was a study done on plants and how they were able to like create their own like circadian rhythm, which is super cool. And mm-hmm. so in 1729, a French geophysicist found that if you expose a plant to rising and setting of the sun for a certain amount of time, I think it was like 24 hours it wasn't a long amount of time it retains that knowledge and then when you take it away from the sun it still opens and closes with the same rhythm rhythm um as it did when exposed to the sun (laughs) and so that's fascinating i wonder if that's around the same time like they were doing like the the like 1729 i wonder if that's the same time as like you're doing like the um genetically modified peas and stuff i can't remember what year that is Oh yeah, you the know, or not to mention by the um the mixing of the peas and. Mm-hmm. What's his name? It starts with an L. He was a monk. He was in a, yeah. a monk's something rather. I wonder if okay. I was all around the same era, or if, I, if my timeline's way off. <laughs> I'm very intrigued. I shall Google yeah. that after. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so then he also, or we, I guess, the collective we, have learned that humans also have this internal clock, but it wasn't until 200 years later that they discovered this. And so they discovered um, that humans have two, or there were two different results to the study. Um, and so humans have an endogenous circadian rhythm, like the plants. So it's very, like, internal. And our our wake and sleep cycle is actually longer than 24 hours. And so the term circadian rhythm just translates to approximately one day. So usually okay. um, it's like 24 and a half hours or like 25, like not a considerable difference, but mm-hmm. it is just slightly longer than 24 hours, mm-hmm. which is super fun. And um, he also talks about how daylight isn't the only thing that brains use to regulate themselves in terms of sleep. So there's like food, exercise, temperature fluctuations, and regularly timed social interactions can also reset the biological clock, which is kind of interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's why people who are blind do not lose their circadian rhythm, which I had never thought about. No, I never, never once would that have crossed my mind. Yeah. I was like, I mean, I guess they sleep. But if you're blind, blind, then it's always dark, hypothetically. Yeah. It had never crossed my mind that, like, they didn't get to see the rising and the setting of the sun. So, like, how would they know when it's nighttime? Shades of dark? Yeah. I don't know. I've never I've never thought about that. That's actually really fascinating. Well, like, my one friend, she um, had, like... I think it's like something to do with your retina that like degrades over time. So you like slowly mm-hmm. fade to black. Um, mm-hmm. And so she could see like shadows and stuff. So she could kind of see like light. But mm-hmm. and I don't know if now it's fully black or not. But yeah, I was like, that's crazy. 
And then he said something, yeah. And he said something that was really validating for me, which is that not everyone's rhythm is the same. And so that's why some people are early risers and some are night Mm -hmm. owls. And so it was kind of like, I'm allowed to be a night owl. It's in my circadian rhythm. (laughs) And so (laughs) 40% of people are morning types, 30% of people are evening types. And then the remaining 30% just fluctuate between evening and morning. Yeah, and then, I fluctuate. Yeah. Like I can I can either wake up early or I can stay up late, but I need eight hours of sleep for whatever I'm doing the next day. Yeah, that makes sense. So like I can't stay up till 1 a.m. and wake up at 6 a.m. I have a really hard time with that. Right. But if I'm like, if I don't have to be anywhere until 10 a.m. the next day, staying up till 1 a.m. is like, or even 2 a.m. is easy. Right. So like, would you say you prefer one or the other? prefer morning because I'm more productive and that's why I, I yeah. like like doing the 6am workout thing because it's yeah. like I'm, I'm up early I do something productive right away and then I still have so much time to do before I have to do my next task yeah so I can like make breakfast and shower and get myself ready so yeah that makes sense like staying up late or doing something like staying up late to pack or staying up late to visit or staying up late to whatever doesn't bother me either mm-hmm but yeah. if I need to no, be productive, evenings are not my time to do that. Okay. I heard reproductive. <laughs> well, I was like, well, that's very informative. Thank you. <laughs> I need to I was be like, productive. Be productive. Yeah. I kind of was like loading and I was like, there's no way that's what she just said. <laughs> reproduction is exclusively evening (laughs) yeah because i was like yeah if i want to like reproductive and i was like excuse me (laughs) (laughs) that's good (laughs) oh my gosh okay so um also your chronotype which is whether or not you're like a morning or evening person is actually determined by genetics. And so if you're a night owl, then it's highly likely that one or both of your parents is also a night owl. And then he talks about how like society is made for morning people, which can cause health issues due to lack of sleep in night owls, hmm. which is fascinating. Is that is that true for you? Um, I don't know, because like I can also know better that if I have to get up early, I need to go to bed early. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes when like I can't fall asleep, it's not that fun. And I know that if I'm like, if I wake up at five, like I am nauseous oh. and I have been for my entire life, which is why going to early workouts isn't fun. Cause I can't eat before. Cause I already feel like I'm going to throw up and then I go to work out and then I like deplete all of my energy and then I'm hungry again by the end. And so like I go home and I am just sick. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder if, if your stomach is doing any like digestive repair during that time or something. Yeah. Well, even like this morning, I, I went to sleep really late because Bryce and I um, watched Supernatural. And yeah. then um, waking up this morning, I, my stomach was still a little, just a little bit queasy. Interesting. Yeah. Are your parents like, night owls? Um, I, I think my dad would be classified as a night owl. Okay. My mom, I don't know. Both of them have issues with sleep right now, it feels like, because my dad will stay up late and then get up early and then just, like, have a nap during the day. Hmm. And my mom goes to bed early so she can get up early and so she can, like, do chores and all farmer stuff. 
But if she didn't have to get up early, do you think she would be a... No, I think she would still go to bed early. Oh, okay. Yeah. Fascinating. But yeah, right? I think my parents are like me where they're mixed. Or if anything, they're more morning. Yeah. But they both have morning jobs. So I don't know how much of that's conditioning or how much of that is preference. Exactly. Well, and you can train your sleep schedule too. Yeah. Which he doesn't really talk about that. But um, the next thing he talks about is then jet lag. And so it takes one day for every hour difference for your body to regulate its circadian rhythm. So if you're going somewhere, you have to stay for, or you should stay for that amount of time so that your body can fully reset to that circadian rhythm so you don't cause issues. Okay, that's interesting. Right? Because- <laughs> okay, so on that same token then, me coming back from Finland, I needed to be in mm-hmm. Canada for nine months before it regulated? No, nine days. Or oh, nine days, okay. Yeah. Even though it's I spent one nine hour months. for every day. So like, is Finland what nine oh, hours? One hour. Oh, there we yeah. go. I was like, yeah. I was like, equal day. I was like, oh my goodness, <laughs> that's a long time. Oh um, my gosh, no. Okay. Hmm. I've never had issues with jet lag with all my travels. Yeah, but I also just don't sleep <laughs> until I'm in that yeah. place. And that's also that can also be part of it. But yeah, mm. he says that if you want to like not cause any like long-term damages to um it takes like if you're going to somewhere that's eight hours ahead you should be there for at least eight days to reset before you go home i'm trying to figure i think finland's nine hours ahead of us but yeah okay and you were there for longer than nine hours yeah nine days sorry yeah so nine months <laughs> mm-hmm. okay fascinating yeah I, yeah I've never had issues with jet lag, but again, that's because I just don't sleep ever. Mm-hmm. Like when I'm on travel days, like coming back to or from, yeah, I just try to stay awake until I'm at nighttime in the place that I'm going to. And that probably helps quite a bit because then like your circadian rhythm, this whole chapter on circadian rhythm was just fascinating because mm-hmm. he even showed like graphs and stuff about how like it fluctuates and how like if when you get over a certain peak of something then it gets like easier to stay awake i think it was adenosine that was also really something that i don't think i have in my notes is that adenosine um is what causes you to like feel sleepy it causes Mm -hmm. a sleep pressure um and so it increases from the moment you wake up until the moment you go to sleep and the peak of adenosine um into um Whoa. The peak of adenosine in the brain creates an irresistible urge to sleep that happens around 12 to 16 hours of wakefulness. And Mm -hmm. so then if you don't go to sleep, it will just continue to build and build and build. And so then I think when traveling, if you can kind of resist that, you can, yeah, yeah, it makes falling asleep at the regular time better, but also, I don't know. It does, but you also feel drunk and I'll talk about that later on too. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, you get looks from security. I definitely yeah. get randomly selected more when I'm like running off of no sleep because I look. Oh, yeah. All sorts of funky. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> um, another thing that I didn't know was that melatonin is only an aid with falling asleep, but it doesn't actually help you sleep, even though it's present the entire time you are asleep. Which is kind of interesting because it's, it's only it's your like body signal to that that you're sleepy. That's time for bed, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like ignoring that signal. It's like the alarm saying go to bed, and you're just hitting snooze. Is that what the 
pretty much. Okay. But um, I don't fully remember much about that other than like it doesn't help you stay asleep. Oh, okay. It just like um, it's present through the whole time and then they start um, or the pineal gland stops producing it as much when you start to wake up. So mm-hmm. I can't fully wrap my brain around how it doesn't help you sleep if it's present the whole time you're asleep and then you need less of it to wake up. But well, well yeah, you don't need because it melatonin is a signal for sleep, right? So you don't need it when you're waking. You need cortisol. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. But yeah, it was just weird. And so then he also talks about like the dangerous consequences of jet lag and shift work. And so um, with jet lag, the parts of your brain that are in charge of learning and memory actually shrink. But that is if you don't give yourself time to recover. Like if you go somewhere mm. that's 12 hours ahead for three days and then come home kind of thing. Mm. So it's like he, it was done on like pilots and cabin crews and um, yeah. people like that who are always just traveling around. There are some other, then, um, fascinating studies on um, flight attendants that I've seen too. Mm-hmm. That like the havoc that your it wreaks on your body because they're so dehydrating. It's heavy metals. It's um, EMF the, kind of yeah, issues tons of radiation. As well. And yeah. then on top of that, the time zone changes and yeah. Well, I feel like. Mm-hmm. I feel like if you just keep your own sleep schedule, like if you can, mm-hmm. then that will be fine. Like, especially as like a pilot or something. But he also did a little study that said, um, if you sleep for 20 minutes during the first portion of like a long haul flight for the pilot, then they're more awake and like cognitively aware when landing. Mm-hmm. Cause if you're on like a, a long haul flight that's 12 to 16 hours or whatever, the pilot is also awake for those 12 to 16 hours. Like you might get to sleep, but they don't. So then there's a whole bunch of issues of them like landing the plane, which is um, super fun. (laughs) Yeah. So that's great and good to know for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he also talks about like how cabin crews, pilots and shift workers have reported higher rates of cancer and type two diabetes, which um, he talks more about in chapter eight. So I'll get to that later. Um, And then he talks a lot about caffeine, which is super cool. Mm -hmm. So caffeine attaches to the adenosine receptors in your brain, but it doesn't make you sleepy. So it instead, it just masks the effects of adenosine. And then... um, the adenosine just continues to build and grow uh, throughout the entire time you're awake. And then once the caffeine wears off, all of that adenosine that has been building just floods your receptors. And that's what causes the caffeine crash. Oh. Yeah. I didn't know I love that. The brain. I love right? the brain. So fun. It was so cool. And so then he talks about like the half-life mm-hmm. of caffeine. So I loved this. So caffeine peaks at about 30 minutes after oral administration. So when I was in university, I would chug a coffee, have a nap, and then wake up ready to go with my caffeine fully whatevered, in theory. (laughs) Um, And then caffeine also has a half-life of five to seven hours. So if you have a cup of coffee at 7.30 p.m., 50% of the caffeine is still in your brain at 1.30 in the morning. Mm -hmm. So even though like you're going to be that's why you have trouble falling asleep if you have a coffee late at night because you're only halfway through getting rid of that caffeine. Yep. Which is just bonkers. And so caffeine's present in coffee, teas, like certain teas, energy drinks, sodas, dark chocolate, ice cream, mm. pain relievers and weight loss pills. I did yep. not know it was an ice cream. 
Yeah, well, yeah. I, mm, I, I would think it's sugar for ice cream. I didn't know caffeine, like, specifically. Yeah, that was kind of, like, interesting. Um, There's also the coffee talk that you just said. Um, something to note, too, is um, anyone who does gym at night and takes pre-workout. Mm. Oh, that's yeah. that's caffeine as well. It's so caffeinated. So that's something to consider if you are a nighttime gym goer trying to go maybe non-stim pre-workout mm-hmm. or not yeah, at all he, or just he, raw dog it. <laughs> yeah, literally. Because <laughs> he also, he does talk about pre-workout and how um, like people who take it in the morning crash later or something. There was something that he mentions. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was very interesting. Yeah. Um. And then he talks about a study done about how your brain is on caffeine. And so spiders were given like different drugs, um, which were speed, LSD, marijuana, and caffeine. Spiders? And then they were spiders. Okay. Because then they were asked or not asked. Um, they built a web. <laughs> you can't talk to spiders. Um, <laughs> and then the web we're not that was Wednesday built, Adams. <laughs> yeah, right. And they're friggin' scary. Um, so the web that was built when spiders were given caffeine in no way resembled a web, which is super interesting. And Mm. it's page 30 in the book. If you want to look at that, Mac also has the book. So (laughs) because I was second to read it. Yeah. Page 30. Ooh. Okay. Isn't that crazy? We'll put, uh, like, yeah. Photos up of that. It's just like. It doesn't even resemble what you would think of as a web, whereas LSD, speed, and marijuana are at least semi-similar, I would say. Not saying that you should do those drugs, um, <laughs> but it's just it was interesting to see like ha- the effect that caffeine has on the brain. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, that's wild. Including arachnid brains. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how similar we are to spiders, but... I can't really do that. You have eight legs? Oh. (laughs) Oh. Oh. Shad's a lucky man. (laughs) Speaking of caffeine, as I'm drinking coffee right now. (laughs) So I'm trying to cut down on my caffeine, but it's not working. So um, he then ends his chapter with a link to a sleep questionnaire that helps you determine your level of sleep fulfillment. So I'm going to put that in our description and then I'm also going to take it, but I haven't taken it yet. Mm-hmm. It's like four questions. So I don't know how they learn that just from four questions, but well. Is that in the back of the book or where is that? It's page 37. Provided a link. Oh, so it's at the bottom of the book. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we'll do the link and we can submit it. Yeah. So I think that'd be fun. Yeah. And then so for chapter three, which is defining and generating sleep, time dilation and what we learned from a baby in 1952. And so this chapter talks about um, like how we know we've slept, which is an interesting question that I've never actually thought about because he talks about like in the olden days, like how did people not think you were dead? When you were asleep, like what, mm. what differentiates sleep from death other than like your breathing? Because I um, sleep like I'm dead. Exactly. And so how do you know that you've slept? Which I've never like thought about that. 
That's something I can per get you into like a philosophical spiral. Yeah, right. So yeah, think about that with care. Um, <laughs> so when you are asleep, your thalamus is stopping the transmission of certain external signals to the brain, which is why you're not like you don't necessarily hear a lot of things or feel a lot of things. You're just like the dead to the world, but not actually. And so then in 1952, Eugene Asarinsky discovered REM sleep and non-REM sleep. And so he started off by observing rapid eye movements in infants when they were asleep. And then in between the rapid eye movements, there were times when the eyes were calm and not moving. And so then he noticed that these two phases of sleep would repeat throughout the night in a somewhat regular pattern. And he used his own baby daughter to test this hypothesis and found out that he was right. And so he then names these sleep stages rapid eye movement and non-rapid eye movement. Mm -hmm. And something that was really interesting was that our brain waves, when in REM sleep, were almost identical to when we were awake um, and were dreaming in REM sleep. Mm -hmm. And so the only way like researchers were able to differentiate between REM sleep and like wakefulness was like your the movement of your body because when you're in REM sleep you go completely limp mm. and so they that was the way they were able to like measure if this person was awake or asleep which is kind of cool mm-hmm. um and then non-REM sleep has been researched further and is separated into four different stages and three stages three and four are like the deepest stages when it's most difficult to wake the person up and so this cycle is not an even one, and so most of the REM sleep occurs later in your sleep or earlier in the morning. So when you wake up early, you are depriving your brain of precious REM sleep. But if you go to bed late and wake up at your regular time, you're depriving your brain of deep non-REM sleep, which I don't fully understand because you should still be getting the same amount of time. So like, the cycle should still be at the same spot. Hmm. But... I don't know. That's one of the follow-up questions I have for him because I don't understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the brain requires sleep to update our memory bank, which he goes deeper into uh, in later chapters. Chapters, And uh, deep sleep originates in your brain, like right behind here. So in your is, frontal cortex? Prefrontal cortex? Yeah. Right in oh. the middle of your frontal lobe. And then it sends like radio waves like back. Not like Mm. not radio waves, but it sends like the sleep waves back and back and back. And then um, once you like want to wake up or whatever, they just like lessen in intensity. But I have a question. What if your frontal lobe isn't fully developed until you're 25? How does that affect your sleep if that's supposedly where your sleep is coming from? Well, isn't it usually more because kids need more sleep? They he talks about that as well they don't necessarily yeah they do need more sleep we know they sleep properly adolescents teenagers need more sleep than adults yeah so it's like as it's developing it should hypothetically be producing more of those sleep signals yeah which is interesting and that's another thing that i haven't talked about i guess i don't know where it um where I took those notes, but when you're a teenager, you're, excuse me, when you're a teenager, your circadian rhythm actually changes. Mm-hmm. So that's why they like go to sleep later and wake up later is because their actual circadian rhythm has changed and then it'll shift back to what it was before. And then it happens again uh, when you get old. Yeah. 
which is crazy. So instead of like getting mad at your teenager for sleeping in, you can just be like, oh, that's just your circadian rhythm. You're not a lazy sack of shit because no one wants to hear that. Yeah. So because I was (laughs) because I was kind of a kind of a bratty teenager and I was into psychology, that was my excuse. I was like, well, teenagers need more sleep than you do. So, mm." yeah, it's like I'm just I'm just helping my brain develop. Like I would say shit like that to my parents. Well, you're not not lazy. I need more sleep. Yeah. It's like you go to bed later, you wake up later. That's just what happens. Yeah. I'm helping my brain. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Oh, so you don't (laughs) want me to develop properly. I see how it is. (laughs) That's a really bad parent move if you don't want my brain fully developed. exactly. (laughs) So to all the teenagers listening. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. And you're also like, if you're a teenager who's already a night owl and then it shifts again, so you're just even more of a night owl, like good luck. But that's pretty much the rest of chapter three and then chapter four is ape beds dinosaurs and napping with a half brain who sleeps how do we sleep and how much i love the chapter <laughs> names excuse me sorry you did a really good job at like naming the chapters because thank hooks. you they yeah right i was like how on earth does this like what and so this is where he talks about like the anthropology of sleep um mm-hmm. And so there are differences between the species in terms of sleep. And so the first difference is the amount of time asleep because each species needs a different um, amount of sleep. The second difference is stages of sleep. So all species experience non-REM sleep, but only certain species don't experience REM sleep. It was very weird. And so only birds and mammals or some mammals have REM sleep for sure, but aquatic mammals do not have REM sleep. And so he hypothesizes that they don't have REM sleep or they have a different kind of REM sleep because going limp in the water um, is kind of detrimental to survival. Yeah. So he's like, they can't, they wouldn't be here if they still had REM sleep kind of thing. But Mm -hmm. he thinks it just, it shows up in a different way and they're actually still getting it. Well, even the way a lot of aquatic animals like actually sleep with one eye open or both eyes open or Mm -hmm. they have to sleep like on guard, I guess. Yeah. And I talk about that in a little bit here. Okay. Um, And so third is the way we sleep, which this one's very interesting because birds sleep uh, one brain hemisphere at a time and humans sleep with both hemispheres at a time. So when they're sleeping with one eye open, they have that side of their brain awake and the other side to sleep. And then they can like switch. Do their brains cross over like humans? So if their um, left eyes open, is their right brain working? I don't know. That'd be fascinating too. Yeah, if they have to. If they have to go over that cross because that seems like a lot of work mm-hmm. for biology and evolution to have created. Right. Yeah, but it's also survival, like. For like animals sleeping in trees, they kind of need to, or like birds, when you can be so easily preyed upon, you kind of have to keep one eye open. And so then what one bird species will do is like all of them will like huddle in the middle. They'll all sleep like full brained. And then there'll be some like watch guards who will sleep like one side open, like opposite side. So like one's right eye, one's left eye. Mm -hmm. And then they'll switch about halfway through the night so that they can sleep their other half of the brain. Oh, which is cool. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, 
And like he said that humans have a very weak example of this like uni hemispheric sleep, but that's usually just where we're sleeping somewhere that we don't know. So like the first mm-hmm. night in a hotel or something, you tend not to get a good sleep because you're kind of half awake, mm-hmm. um, which is cool. But we're not close to birds in that way <laughs> yet, which would be, could you imagine just like, good night? <laughs> Terrifying. <laughs> my cousin, his eyelids don't close all the way. So sometimes it looks like he his eyes are open when he sleeps. Oh my gosh. Which That's always me. freaked me out as a kid. I was like. Is he okay? <laughs> Are you good, sir? <laughs> yeah, he was asleep, but he, his eyes looked like they were open because his eyelids wouldn't close fully. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. And so then the fourth difference is sleep patterns. So sleep deprivation can cause fatal outcomes. So humans do not possess an evolutionarily beneficial um, ability to deprive ourselves of sleep like some other species. Um, just because I guess we haven't needed to, I don't really understand but yeah, mm-hmm. sleep deprivation will kill us, but it doesn't kill every species. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he brings up the topic of like a biphasic pattern of sleep, like we talked about in the wintering, which mm-hmm. is super cool. And so he's like, you should be sleeping for four hours, up for a couple hours, sleeping for four more hours, and then taking an afternoon nap. And so I am using that as validation whenever I feel like I need to take an afternoon nap. And I'm just like, <laughs> it's for my health. <laughs> I don't want dementia. Yeah, exactly. I'm already <laughs> predetermined for that. So let's nip that in the bud. Yeah. <laughs> Naps for me. <laughs> yep. I'm a big nap girl. Um, in my nap era. <laughs> literally. <laughs> it was so good. Um, and then he talks about like, yeah, how an afternoon nap should be considered a normal thing. And then there was a study done of the consequences of stopping um, siesta culture in a Greek city. And so there was a 37% increase in the risk of death from heart disease over the six-year period. And then um, in working men, the mortality risk was increased by over 60%. Which, which is fascinating, too, because when we just talked about Mediterranean diets, right? One of the mm-hmm. key things of the Mediterranean is the low cardiovascular disease from mm-hmm. diet and then on top of that now sleep also contributes to that. Yeah. And so like they were pract- like practicing this like afternoon nap stuff. And so then chapter 5 is changes in sleep across the lifespan. And he starts it off strong by saying that when a baby kicks in utero, they're asleep. And they don't actually experience wakefulness until the third trimester, and even then they're only awake for 2 to 3 hours a day. I wonder what it's like. I mean, cuz we don't have memories of it. Mm-hmm. But to wake up in amniotic fluid, like, yeah. Like, are and so you, I'm, is your brain just active or are your eyes open or? Right. I feel like it's more that like your brain is active and you can hear things and like feel yeah. maybe movement a little bit. But yeah, when they're like kicking and moving, they're asleep, hmm. which is crazy. And so then... Mm-hmm. um. There have been studies coming out saying that pregnant women can have one to two glasses of wine with no impact on their baby. And so uh, our buddy Matthew Walker says bullshit. And so there was a study done where pregnant women drank non-alcoholic fluids one day and then um, about two glasses of wine the next day, um, just weeks before giving birth. And researchers found that it reduced the amount of REM sleep the unborn baby experienced and it also dampened the intensity of REM sleep it experienced as well. Um, 
and he he talks about a different study that was done on rats then where they were like fully deprived of REM sleep and how they had so many like neurological issues after being Mm -hmm. deprived of REM sleep in utero, which is crazy. He -hmm. also says that there was a marked depression in breathing during REM sleep with breath rates dropping from a normal level of 381 breaths per hour to just four breaths per hour in Mm -hmm. the fetus, which is bonkers. Yeah. So, um, I would definitely recommend reading that study because that was very interesting because I've mm-hmm. seen a lot of like, I don't know, like posts about women being able to have like one to two glasses of wine. Like, oh, it's fine. You'll be OK. They've decided that it's OK, but mm-hmm. it's not. Yeah. So um, and then he also talks about how like deep sleep plays a very important role in brain maturation during childhood. And then this is where he talks about the um circadian rhythm changing for teenagers Mm -hmm. and then he talks about there's three changes in sleep that we experience as we get older and so the first is that we experience a reduced quality and quantity as we get less hours of deep sleep and so he says quote the parts of our brain that ignite healthy deep sleep at night are the very same areas that degenerate or atrophy earliest and most severely as we age end quote Mm-hmm. which is scary. Mm-hmm. Um, he also says that our sleep becomes fragmented and we wake up more throughout the night, like for like a weakened bladder or something. And then yep. there's also changes in our circadian rhythm again that we're fighting. And as we age, we start to get tired more earlier in the evening and then often fall asleep before we want to, and then wake up in the middle of the night, struggle to go back to sleep. And then our body tells us to wake up in the morning super early. We struggle with that as well. Mm-hmm. And so ways he suggests to combat this. And when I say get older, I mean like 60s to 80s kind of deal, not like Mm -hmm. 30s for us. So um, you can wear sunglasses in the morning because a lot of elderly people go out and like do morning activities. Wear sunglasses in the morning when you're out there to kind of help your circadian rhythm. But then also go outside in the afternoon without sunglasses. Mm -hmm. And then they can also take melatonin because it's more beneficial for them and it just boosts their natural output as an elderly person, but it's not good to take if you're not old, I guess. I didn't really mm-hmm. understand. It's another one of the follow-up questions I have for him. Well, and a note on a note on melatonin that's like, I think side related is that melatonin comes from serotonin. So also as you age, when you're not eating as much and you're not um, helping your gut as much, that mm-hmm. also contributes to the lack of melatonin production in the brain. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Because serotonin comes from tryptophan and all that if you want to talk about the amino acids. So if you're not eating enough amino acids and you're not and your gut is also um, produces 95% of the serotonin as we talked about before. Right. If you're lacking in all of those, then your melatonin production isn't going to be there because you don't have the precursors for melatonin production. Right. So eat turkey if you want to sleep good. Yeah, that's that's why well, that's why people say with like Thanksgiving dinner, right? You get sleepy mm-hmm. after Thanksgiving dinner is because of the amount of tryptophan, and you're also oh, with fun. family and friends, which boosts your serotonin and your dopamine and all the happy chemicals. Yeah, so wild fun fact side comment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then um, we're at part two, which is why should you sleep? And so chapter six is your mother and Shakespeare knew the benefits of sleep for the brain. 
And so uh, he just kind of talks about how like sleep is beneficial for memory and learning. He talks about sleeping before learning, sleeping after learning, and how we need sleep to be able to learn and retain things. So it's important to sleep before you learn something big and then also sleep after so you can like retain it, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then he talks about how practice doesn't make perfect, but when you pair it with a good night's sleep, then it does. And so he has people um, like typing a number sequence on a computer with their left hand, I think. And then he'll give them like the day to practice. And then they'll either go home and get a good night's sleep or be deprived of sleep and then come back the next day and see how much it's improved, which is kind of really interesting. Mm -hmm. And so that's all I had for that chapter. And then chapter seven is too extreme for the Guinness Book of World Records, sleep deprivation in the brain, because the Guinness Book of World Records actually removed um, the category of like how long people can stay awake mm. or whatever, because it was so causing like, detrimental so for mm-hmm. health. Okay. Which is bonkers. So sleep deprivation can lead to Alzheimer's, anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, suicide, stroke, chronic pain, cancer, diabetes, heart attacks, infertility, weight gain, obesity, and immune deficiency. So, yay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We love that cocktail. So that's my favorite kind. Um, (laughs) So effects of sleep deprivation on concentration. After four hours of sleep for six nights, participants' performance was as bad as those who had not slept for 24 hours straight, which was a 400% increase in microsleeps, which is where you like, you fall asleep basically when you blink, Mm -hmm. which is uh, terrifying, especially if you're driving. Which he says that drowsy driving is just as dangerous as drunk driving, if not more, because when you're drowsy driving and you microsleep, you're actually asleep. But when you're <laughs> drunk driving, your senses are just muted. So you're mm-hmm. like late to reacting. But if you're asleep, you just don't react at all. Mm-hmm. And so not to say that you should drink and drive, but it's drowsy driving is just as dangerous. Um, yeah. And so people who are awake... Uh, for 19 hours are cognitively or as cognitively impaired as someone with a 0.08 blood alcohol level or legally drunk. Mm-hmm. Which is There's scary. another um, fact that he brings up and it's also 22 hours is the number is that okay. you are like, legally drunk. Yeah. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he talks about how like the human recycle rate is 16 hours. So after 16 hours of being awake, the brain begins to fail Um, he says that humans need more than seven hours of sleep each night to maintain cognitive performance. And after 10 days of just seven hours of sleep, the brain is, is, is as dysfunctional as it would be after going without sleep for 24 hours. And then in order to restore performance back to normal levels, excuse me, after a week of short sleeping, you need three full nights of recovery sleep Mm -hmm. to even get to the same level. And, the human mind cannot accurately sense how sleep deprived it is when mm-hmm. you are sleep deprived, which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, he also talks about how sleep disruption is a neglected factor that contributes to the instigation and or maintenance of numerous psych- or psychiatric illnesses and that it's a very powerful diagnostic and therapeutic tool that we are yet to fully understand or make use of. And he says that when we are deprived of sleep, we it inhibits our memory formation because memories are formed when we're sleeping. Mm-hmm. And then he talks about the relationship between sleep and Alzheimer's. And so as we learned in the 
Radical New Approach to Depression book. Alzheimer's is associated with the buildup of a toxic form of protein called beta amyloid. And so these amyloid plaques are poisonous to neurons, and then, but they only impact some parts of the brain. Oh, and something he also mentioned was that the hippocampus remains untouched by amyloid plaques, even though Alzheimer's is a disease that affects memory. Mm-hmm. And the hippocampus is one of our like memory centers, mm-hmm. which is, I thought, very interesting. Mm-hmm. And so he says, without, without sufficient sleep, amyloid plaques build up in the brain, especially in deep sleep generating regions, attacking and degrading them. The loss of non-REM sleep caused by this assault lessens the ability to remove amyloid from the brain at night, resulting in greater amyloid deposition. So you sleep less, more amyloid, then you can sleep, then you can't sleep any deeper. And then it's just like this really mean cycle, mm-hmm. which I thought was fascinating. Yeah. And so I've been telling everyone I meet that that's just a fun little fact. <laughs> I love and it. So then, yeah, mm-hmm. right. Just fun facts with dupes. (laughs) So put that into a coffee table book. I would love that. (laughs) That would be amazing. It'll just be full of like morbid facts that I don't even know if are true or not. Could be good for the tism. It would be great for the tism and those who are artistic. (laughs) Anyway, um, chapter eight is cancer, heart attacks and a shorter life, sleep deprivation in the body. And so lack of sleep can cause a heart attack. And he says adults 45 years and older who sleep fewer than six hours a night are 200% more likely to have a heart attack or stroke during their lifetime than those sleeping seven to eight hours a night. I would also like to mention that he is from the United States. And so a lot of these studies are done on the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, And he also goes on to talk about the correlation between daylight saving times and heart attacks the next day. And so correlation doesn't necessarily equal causation, but in this case, it's very interesting because when we lose an hour of sleep, there's an increase in heart attacks the next day. But when we gain an hour of sleep, the amount of heart attacks decreases the next day. So I don't know how you can know that it decreased without like having something to compare. And I guess what time of year also contribute to that, right? Because seasonality. Yeah. Like I don't know because you gain an hour in the winter, right? Um, and yeah, yeah, and then we lose an hour in spring. Yeah, so I wonder. So then, that's the opposite of what I would think. Then you think that the Mm. cold weather, but I wonder if the cold weather is a protective factor because it's like hibernation mode, time to chill. Yeah, I don't know. Um, But he also notices Mm. that there's a similar pattern in car accidents as well because more people are drowsy driving. Especially if they've lost an hour of sleep, which is scary. So stay off the roads the day after daylight savings time. Um, You should just be like the cows in Saskatchewan. What do they do? Saskatchewan doesn't do it for the cows. Remember? LOL. We had that conversation in um, in SAD. (laughs) (laughs) No memory of this. (laughs) Yeah, because it's bad for the cows. And so they opted out of it. For the cows, amongst other things, but the feeding That's times really messed up the yield and growth and all sorts of stuff for farmers. And so they're like, no, we're not doing this anymore. Wild. How Saskatchewan. <laughs> That's crazy. Okay. Well, and see, they like, I was kind of on the fence about like getting rid of daylight saving times, but after like reading this and like how important sleep actually is, like it makes sense. And then if we can just like slowly, 
Mm-hmm. I don't know, because your circadian rhythm will still be kind of out of whack. Yeah, for both but, ways. Like, so what's the point of? Yeah, of both, right? Yeah. Again, some like we had the conversation of some say it's to protect kids from being out in the dark and da 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 da. da. But like, yeah, just put them in an activity, an after school activity. Or people can be less shitty, and so we don't yeah. have to worry about our kids mm-hmm. being. Um. Yeah. yeah. What's also so. interesting is Russia doesn't do um daylight savings, and so when I was in Russia. Uh-huh. And the uh, daylight savings switch happened while I was there. And I had mm-hmm. no recollection of, of the switch until I got back to Finland. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because then I was That's like, well, wild. Why, is this, why is this off? And it's because Russia doesn't mm-hmm. do it. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's like, what's the benefit to doing it? Like, we went how many millions of years without daylight saving time? So it's, why? It's for work and industrial revolution kind of yeah but purposes, like right you want the daylight so everyone can get up and go to work and drive safe to work and da, 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 da. but not everyone's a morning person so getting up and going to work at 9 a.m or whatever is just as detrimental as like not mm-hmm. you know like the whole society how it is now is very it's it's my way or the highway right like yeah there's if you don't fit a morning person man then tough luck yeah but that's a conversation for another day Mm -hmm. um (laughs) so then he also talks about how chronic sleep deprivation is recognized as one of the major contributors to uh type 2 diabetes throughout first world countries which i find Mm -hmm. very interesting um, and then he says that when you're sleep deprived, you actually eat more. And so mm-hmm. your cravings for sweets, heavy hitting, carbohydrate rich foods and salty snacks increase by 30 to 40 percent. Sorry. When sleep is reduced by several hours and then protein rich foods and fatty foods only increase about 10 to 15 percent. Mm-hmm. It's because of the, the leptin ghrelin balances off. Which so. he talks about. Mm. I was like, I know those words. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then he talks about how like short sleep will increase hunger and appetite, compromise impulse control within the brain, increase food consumption, decrease feelings of food satisfaction after eating, and prevent effective weight loss when dieting, which mm-hmm. I find very interesting. So yeah. make sure you're sleeping good if you are on a diet. And mm-hmm. then he kind of switches gears and talks about the reproductive system and sleep. And so um, regularly sleeping less than six hours a night will result in a 20% drop in follicular releasing hormone in women, which is critical for ovulation and conception, which is scary. And Mm -hmm. then um, men who report sleeping too little have a 29% lower sperm count. And if they have some form of sleep condition, such as sleep apnea, then they will also have lower levels of testosterone, Hmm. which is, yeah. And so he like he says that he like goes to like um talks or whatever. He like gives this talk and then like all like the gym bros like are like, no, that doesn't happen. And then he's like, Yeah, and so like also people who are like men who sleep less also have smaller testicles as well and just kind of like shuts them right down and it's amazing. Yeah. Um <laughs> So then he also talks about the relationship between sleep and the immune system. And so when you're not sleeping, your immune system isn't able to do its job. And then he does a quick little blurb about shift work and how it's now labeled as a probable carcinogen because of how hard it is on your body and how likely it is to cause cancer. Yep. Which, 
wild. And so that was all that I had for mm-hmm. my parts. Now that we're an hour into this episode. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh. I'll try to try to get through this so we're not two hours long, but <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Alrighty, so that's moving into chapter nine, which is routinely psychotic, um, which then talks about REM sleep and dreaming. Ooh. So there are four clusters in your brain that spike during REM sleep. And so your visuospatial regions in the back of the brain, which enable complex visual perception. Um, Second one is your motor cortex, which instigates movement. Third is your hippocampus and surrounding areas, which support autobiographical memory. And fourth is the deep emotion centers of the brain, which includes the amygdala and the cingulate cortex that help generate and process emotion. And so this area in particular is up to 30% more active during REM sleep than when you're awake. Oh, wow. So your brain is just processing all of your emotions throughout the day when you Mm -hmm. sleep. That's crazy. Um, and so it comes into like why sleep is so therapeutic. So they're in a 2013 study led by Dr. Um, Yukiyasu Katamini. Kamitani, that's it. <laughs> um, okay. At Advanced Telecommunications Research International in Kyoto. They were able to figure out um, what most people were dreaming about based off of brain activation in MRI scans. Oh, which wow. Is fascinating. So for the study, they had people fall asleep while monitoring brain activity. And then whenever they woke up, they would ask each participant what they dreamt about. And so they took key themes that these people were dreaming about and they put them in a list and then they would put them back on some scanners and see which parts of the brain lit up when they were talking about uh, the different themes. Okay. And so when the person was then asleep, based off of what areas of your brain lit up, they are able to tell what they were dreaming about. Oh my gosh, that's so, so cool. Right? So if, if they said you were dreaming about a boy, um, the one thing they couldn't tell is which boy, but they could tell like when you woke up um, and you're still in this like dream state, you could be like, oh, who are you thinking about? Right? Oh my gosh. Which- How invasive. Uh-huh, I know, right? It's It's weird. And so Matthew, he's like, so our dreams really aren't our own if we continue to go into this dream research. Mm-hmm. which is an interesting thought but it just happened to me last night like I woke up and I had a weird dream about a bunch of people in my life where some of them made sense to be all sitting together at this couch but some of them didn't and yeah. so I woke up and my mom I was talking to my mom right away and I was like I'm trying to process why I had this dream of these people in particular and why they were all on a couch hanging out together Mm-hmm. like what commonality do they have that my brain was like these people need to be bunched together right now and yeah, I was observing wild. them talk about random shit yeah and they're all people oh from my like gosh. my past some people I went to high school most people I went to high school with some I didn't some I just knew through mutual friends or things like that but weird it was a very so weird th- thing to wake up to um, yeah and does he talk about um is there any link between like dreams and like your reproductive cycle no, he didn't talk about that. Okay, because I find my dreams get weird when I'm approaching my period. Or well, it's probably it. something to do with hormones and emotions and stuff that you're processing because you are more emotional on mm-hmm. your period. Yeah, it's supposed to be like the time that you think the clearest. And so my dreams are just like messed up. Interesting. I wonder if it's like, yeah, if there's stress reduction or if there's just general emotional... Yeah, because they're nightmares, they're weird dreams. Like, it's just, 
Like they're just crazy. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there was that today and that was interesting. Um, and then he talked about different societies and why they believed what they believed dreams to be. So ancient Egyptians and Greeks believed that dreams were sent down by gods. And then when Aristotle came along, he dismissed this heaven perspective, heaven directed perspective of dreams. Um, and he believed that they took their place in waking events. So oh. basically it's not a God giving you it. It's your day to day life. And then our buddy Freud comes along. <laughs> <laughs> we love Freud. Yeah. He wrote a book called The Interpretation of Dreams in 1899 that states dreaming is unquestionably within the brain. I need to read that book. <laughs> yep, me too. That sounds we very interesting. We need to read Freud's perspective on dreams. Mm-hmm. Maybe one of our book clubs will just be Freud because I have another Freud book um, based off of Freud's perspectives on religion that I picked up in Poland. So I want to. Oh, that would be that's a fun conversation. It would be an interesting read for sure. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And then, so of course, because it's Freud, Freud said dreams come from unconscious, the unconscious that has mm-hmm. not ha- that has not been fulfilled um, as per everything else. Yeah. So basically what you're dreaming is what you don't feel fulfilled in in your day-to-day life. Right. And so with Freud, he then brought up this term called daily residue because you're not filled in your day. You're going to dream about it at night and that's the residue that lingers into your dreams. Right. And then there's a guy called Robert Stickgold at Harvard University that did a study to test the validity of daily residue. And he Mm -hmm. found that only one to 2% of dreams from participants were the daily residue style, indicating that dreams are more random than Freud thinks. Mm -hmm. So what Stickgold also found was that the emotions from day to day unambiguously would reappear in dreams at night for 35 to 55% of participants. So hmm. dreams aren't a play-by-play of the day, but the emotional themes from your day can insert themselves into your sleep and dreams at night. Right. Because I heard, um, I don't know where I heard this, so I don't know how true it is, but it's like dreams are basically your brain's way of trying to make sense of like certain memories and things that have happened to you. Yeah. So that's what we're seeing. And that's what can be seen as well with the fact that your emotional center parts of your brain are 30% more active in dreaming than they are awake. Wow. So if you think you're an emotional person in the day, you're a really Mm -hmm. emotional person at night. Yep. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) this then brings us into chapter 10, which is dreams as an overnight therapy. So he first talks about the idea of like, are dreams and REM, are they relevant or are they just like a sub- um. yeah are dreams relevant or are they just like a subcategory of Ren basically right. the idea of a lamp is what he uses as an example the idea of a lamp the main goal of it is to produce light but it also produces heat so the heat is the epiphenomena of a lamp so are dreams okay. the epiphenomena of REM oh. um, yeah so what as you just said with um dreams processing emotion that's what it was found so dreams are seen as a soothing bomb and right. so at the heart of this theory hormones that are released um in your brain while you dream creates the therapeutic benefits interesting yeah so noradrenaline or norepinephrine aka adrenaline or epinephrine but in the brain mm-hmm. it's nor so they're shut off completely when you're in dream state 
So dream state is the only time during the day where the brain is completely free from anxiety. Um, why then do I have anxiety inducing dreams? That's what I was curious about because he didn't talk about that. And so I was hoping he would answer that question. And I, I thought about it because I was like, oh, well, what about hormones and whatnot? Mm-hmm. But I guess you're just not in REM sleep or your the dreams that you remember aren't REM dreams. They're um, bef- closer to waking up. Right, right. So or maybe they're only anxiety inducing like once you wake up. But like how? Yeah, that's so weird. That's I'll add that to my follow up question list. <laughs> yeah, but hypothetically, when you're in REM specifically, you should have no anxiety. And that's why your brain just processes emotions. Interesting. So as we yeah. know, emotions become a theme for dreams. So if we dream about difficult emotions in a relaxed state, they can be processed in a form of overnight therapy. Hmm. And then so the theory of overnight therapy has REM sleep with two goals. So the first goal is sleeping to remember the details of those valuable experiences and integrating in them in with previous knowledge or two sleeping to forget the painful emotion in those memories oh and so if this theory is to be true it would suggest that dream state supports a form of introspective life review to therapeutic ends quote unquote Hmm. so to test this there was a um, experiment and in the experiment those who slept between two viewings of 12 hours apart of upsetting images they reported less emotional reactions the second time and their MRI scan showed less activity in the amygdala and increase in the practical prefrontal cortex. Wow. So <coughs> if you were to hypothetically Sorry. get into crime scene investigation, you should take mm-hmm. a nap in between viewing upsetting images so that you can look at them rationally. Yeah, it just, that's mm-hmm. so cool. Yeah. Where those who didn't sleep, they remained emotional. And then, so this is a possible explanation for insomnia contributing to mood fluctuations. And it also kind of makes sense of like the don't go to bed or like sleep on it. Yeah. Like if you're feeling strong emotions, like sleep on it. Okay, cool. We'll we'll get more into that later. There's a few uh, chapters of that. So then there's this dude named Cartwright or girl. There's this Hmm. human named Cartwright. (laughs) Uh, who did a study to see if dreams can help mediate depressive episodes in those going through trauma. Hmm. And so this found that for those who weren't dreaming about the event, they couldn't get past the event. And so dreams alone aren't protective factors in the therapy sense, um, but rather dreams that relate to a particular emotion or a particular trauma or event that you're trying to process. That's where they can aid in resolution. So does he distinguish between dreams and nightmares? Because I can understand how like dreams are like helping you make sense of it. But I also feel like if you have a nightmare about a trauma you like experienced, you're just reliving it. And that's one thing I wish I wish I thought about that as well. I wish he had gone more into nightmares. He didn't. Okay. Yeah. So we talk about dreaming and lucid dreaming and insomnia and sleep disorders and all this kind of stuff. But nightmares were never a. a topic touched on, unfortunately. Wild. But, yeah. So, but in this case of therapy and whatnot, he then dives into PTSD patients, right? Mm -hmm. So in the case of PTSD, sleep is disturbed and patients have a higher than normal levels of noradrenaline in the brain. So Matthew worked with Dr. Raskind, who was prescribing um, Prazosin, 
it's a weird okay. word to pronounce, but prazosin, it's a, um, a drug to lower blood pressure in um, vet patients. Like, so not vet as an animal as in like veteran. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Thank um, you for that so, distinction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so prazosin also lowers levels of noradrenaline in the brain. So what they were finding was that patients on the drug could reduce their noradrenaline levels enough to get into REM sleep and benefit from the emotional healing effects of dreaming. Oh, which wild. Was, right. And then to wrap up chapter 10, um, he talks more about sleep deprivation. And so when participants were deprived of sleep, distinguishing emotion through facial expressions was inhibited. So mm. this contributes to playing a role in so much miscommunication that people see or think when they're tired. Right. Think of a tired mom, for example. Yeah. Seen as emotional and fluctuate and irrational they're probably just tired and they they need to they can't distinguish proper emotions or communications or facial expressions etc etc yeah oh wow Mm -hmm. he also found that sleep deprived deprived individuals fell into a default state of a fear bias so basically thinking that everyone even friendly faces were menacing Hmm. everyone's out to get you wild and then he started to touch on the topic of um how certain jobs that require sleep deprivation, how that can affect their work levels. And we'll touch more on that in chapter 15, I think it is. Okay. Um, yeah. So then chapter 11 is dream creativity and dream control, Ooh. as we just touched, or we'll touch on creativity next week. Mm-hmm. That's what we're trying to figure out. But <laughs> creativity is fun. It's so good. Alrighty. So in university, I took creative psychology and I did a paper based on this premise of how dreaming contributes to creative thought. And so he starts he starts touching on similar topics that I wrote about in university. Fun. So REM sleep can blend daily experiences and memories in abstract and novel ways. So creativity is defined as new and useful, aesthetically pleasing or appropriate to a task. And so dreams connecting paths that may have not been thought about otherwise because of the noradrenaline and anxiety response blocks can actually enhance creative thought processes and problem solving in individuals. So this is where the term sleep on it kind of comes from. Yeah. Right. You're able to reduce your emotional state and you're able to think of things differently in dream state. Wild. So how you can experience these effects in waking life is to perform a creative task or have a problem solving prompt to do right when you wake up. Hmm. So if like you have something, if you're stewing on something and you can't think of a solution, take a nap, have a board or something visual right in front of you about that um, contributes to the task you're trying to think about and see what comes to your brain right away. That's so fun. Mm hmm. Oh, I like Um, that. Right. And then. Also, to transition um, out of dream state to waking state, it does take a few minutes. So if you Mm -hmm. need to think of a solution to a problem, um, have that problem available so you can like brainstorm within the first like 90 seconds. Like it's it's very, very short. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so then he kind of talk about how waking state and dream state vary. He uses the telescope as an example. So when you're awake, it's like looking through the wrong end of a telescope. So your viewpoint is narrow and very targeted. 
But when you're asleep, it's like looking through the right end, which acts as a wide angle lens. You can see the full galaxy in front of you. Wow, that's cool. Right? And so this extends to learning as well. Mm -hmm. And so there are studies that show that if you take a nap after learning something, the brain can code the information better because it, Mm -hmm. as you said earlier, it um, contributes to memory. And then he talked about a study that found that those who took a nap after seeing a maze task were able to solve the maze task faster than those who didn't nap. Oh, wow. That's cool. Mm-hmm. But then he, those who reported dreaming of the maze showed a 10 times more improvement. Oh, yeah. Because they were able to visualize with a goal in many right. ways. Right. Interesting. Right? And so... Our old buddy who created the light bulb, Mr. Thomas Edison himself, um, he was a big fan of midday naps, describing it as the genius nap. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so he would, what he would do is he'd be at his desk or wherever, and mm. he would place a metal saucepan on the floor beside him. In front of him, he would have a pad of paper and a pen, and he would be holding three metal balls and he would fall asleep. Mm-hmm. And so when he dozed off, his muscles would relax and he would drop the balls on the metal saucepan, waking him up. And he, right away, he would write down every creative thought that he had on the pen and paper oh. in front of him. So that's wild. Yeah. But he was he took this idea of napping, midday napping to a whole nother extent. And it partially contributed to his genius, I guess. Well, I mean, it works, so. Exactly. That's crazy. Yeah. And then so another thing that he touches on is lucid dreaming, which is essentially you're able to control when you dream and what you dream about. The current research is that these people are like bullshitting that what they what they say, like, like, oh, yeah, I can control my dreams. And they're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. So there needs to be more research on it. Um, right. But there have been some studies that actually relate because what we know of dream study we're able to like mark the mri section of the brain when you dream and when you're talking about in real life and so there are studies now that are showing that these people aren't bullshitting they are in fact dreaming of what they say they are but lucid dreaming is such a a new concept that only some people have so it's very interesting it's very new part of psychology but it's interesting if you're talking about this genius nap and this genius yeah way of thought if you're trying to get into creativity if you can lucid dream you might get benefits of dreaming in real life in a conscious kind of state that's wild because I feel like I don't necessarily lucid dream but I can go back to a dream Mm -hmm. so if I like this is not fun when you have nightmares because I'll like have a nightmare and then I'll wake up and I have to think so hard to not go back to that nightmare but if I'm having like a good dream or something I can like think hard enough to actually go back to it, which is kind of cool. Yeah. And then I can manipulate it a little bit. Yeah. Or if so. it's a dream I've had before, then I can be like, oh, I know it's coming. I don't want that to happen. But then I don't really have control over what happens next. But I yeah. can change it from what I've experienced before. Yeah. Wild. Wild. So this takes us into chapter 12, which is called Things That Go Bump in the Night, Sleep Disorders, oh. and Death by No Sleep. Yay. So this chapter focuses on somnambulism, insomnia, narcolepsy, and fatal familial insomnia. Fun. Right? So well, not really, somnambulism but... refers to sleep, 
which is somnus disorders that involve some some form of movement, which is ambulation. So this includes sleep, talking, walking, eating, texting, sex, and homicide. Fun. Yeah. (laughs) We we just had a conversation about this the other day. They sent, uh, for my other podcast, they sent uh, an article about like, like killing people in your sleep. It was very yeah, cool. So I'll, I'll give you the name of a guy I think that's in this book, but you should look into it because it's just fascinating. Mm-hmm. So cool. And so what's interesting about these events is that they all arise in non-REM sleep. Why? Or, or, or like you're not dreaming. Right. So you think it, that someone's walking is trying to perform a task as in a dream, but they're not actually dreaming. Yeah. Because you wouldn't be like, because that was my question was... If you're dreaming this, like you can't move, like it shouldn't be possible because you go limp or whatever when you're dreaming. Yeah. Wild. So that actually comes from an, an, a, the idea of like, there's no fully known cause for it. Mm-hmm. But what is expected is there's an unexpected spike in nervous system activity that triggers you to move normally. Like you're not in your sleep paralysis, I guess. Okay. Um. Like your muscles aren't paralyzed mm-hmm. as they should be. But when I'm sleep talking, you, you'd think that I'm dreaming and having a conversation in a dream, but apparently I'm just sleep talking just to talk. Maybe that's why like it doesn't make much sense. Yeah. Because yeah, Bryce sleep talks and it like it just it's usually about work. Yeah. But then I'm but like, oh, are you dreaming about, about work? Yeah. Wow, my favorite thing he said was, um, good night, good morning. Our bed's a circle. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. I was like, I just love it. I say that all the time. It's so good. (laughs) That's so good. One friend in um in grade six, we were at camp and she sat up in her bed and screamed party people. In her sleep. She screamed what? Party people. <laughs> Woke the whole cabin up at camp. That's amazing. It was hilarious. Uh, no, I've like I've been writing down like all of the ones that I can remember of what Bryce has said because I want to do like a milk and honey book or whatever yeah. of just like random st- like sayings of what he said with like those little drawings because I think that'd be so funny. That's so good. <laughs> All right. And so for the homicide example, the guy's name was Ken Parks. And basically he, in his sleep, um, left his house, drove to his in-law's house and killed his mother-in-law. Yeah, I've heard about him. Which is wild. The The idea of a man who is fast asleep driving a car. To is, his mother-in-law's. Yeah. To kill his mother-in-law. <laughs> like, oh my God. Right? <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. And so the next theme of this chapter is insomnia. So insomnia is suffering from an inadequate ability to get sleep despite allowing yourself the opportunity to get sleep. Right. So and then there's paradoxical insomnia um, where patients report poor or no sleep. But when monitored, they actually physically receive better sleep than they think they're receiving. Oh, interesting. Which is interesting as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other types of um, insomnia, there's onset insomnia, which is difficulty falling asleep. Or maintenance mm-hmm. insomnia, which is trouble maintaining sleep. Oh, interesting. And then he talks about some diagnostic classifications for both. Um, 
but basically it's like frequency and um of an ability to sleep and dsm i don't know does dsm insomnia fall under dsm i think i'm pretty sure it does yeah but dsm classifications are always updating so whenever you're listening to this you can look in there and you can get an idea yeah um so insomnia is actually twice as common in women versus men um but with that stat it is possible that men aren't accurately like representing sleep issues oh okay don't like talking about issues yeah men don't talk about their ish as we they do not it's annoying yeah Yeah. (laughs) and so sleep um insomnia specifically also affects about 40 million americans holy cow right it's a lot of people that's a lot of people yeah so socioculturally, um, African-Americans and Hispanic-Americans have higher insomnia numbers, which contributes to obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, uh, I'm sorry, and cardiovascular disease numbers in these communities. Um, what does insomnia have to do with, like, what ethnicity you are? Part of me thinks it's trauma, right? Yeah, because, that's true. Because part of insomnia is... Um, Part of insomnia triggers are emotional concerns and worry. Right. And so if you are marginalized and or have a history of, I don't know, abuse or if you want to talk slavery or poverty, Mm -hmm. you're going to be more anxious about how you're going to achieve those day-to-day means. Right. So that's what I would guess. Um, Yeah. But it's seen higher in those communities versus everyone else interesting right mm-hmm. um 28 to 45 percent of insomnia is genetic non-genetic causes include psychological physical environmental and medical factors mm-hmm. other factors that contribute to insomnia include bright light at night wrong ambient wrong ambient room temperature mm-hmm. caffeine tobacco and alcohol consumption fun and then as i just said the two most common triggers are psychological so emotional concerns or worry and emotional distress or anxiety all hmm. these stem from an overactive sympathetic nervous system and so simply insomnia patients cannot disengage from a pattern of worrisome brain activity which contributes to the inability to sleep wild right um so then we have narcolepsy which is a neurological disorder that is classified by three core symptoms so excessive daytime sleepiness, sleep paralysis, and cataplexy, which is collapsing, basically. So it comes oh. from the Greek word kata, which is down, and plexus, which is stroke seizure, um, and is triggered by a strong emotional emotion, positive or negative. That's wild. Yeah. So if you have cataplexy in narcolepsy, you could see your kid walk for the first time and you'd collapse. Oh, my gosh. Or you could get, get fired from your job and you'd collapse. Wild. Yeah. Okay. So narcolepsy is um, genetic, but it's not, it's coming from a mutation of genes. So it's not inherited by a parent-child kind of connection. Right. One in every 2,000 people suffer from narcolepsy. That's a lot. And then, right. And wow. so, yeah. And so in your brain... Um, there's this hormone called orexin, which is basically the on switch for the wake cycle. And so those with narcolepsy, they've lost 90% of their orexin producing cells, creating an unstable switch. Wow. So essentially what's going on is their brain is short circuiting 
And so they they hit the paralysis part of sleep, but they're not actually um, like asleep. They're very conscious. They can understand what's going on around them, but their body turns into paralysis as if you should be like dead asleep. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's wild. Okay. Right. Oh my gosh. Um, so then this is like a moves into this next little thing here. So the last grouping um, is fatal familial insomnia. And this unlocked a new fear for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no doubt. So fatal familial insomnia. There are no treatments or cures for this disorder. Um, it is the cause of it is an anomaly of a gene called PRNP or prion protein. Mm-hmm. This mutation spreads like a virus and starts destroying parts of the brain. And most people who get this will die within 10 months. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, get oh my gosh. So, one of the first parts that gets attacked is the thalamus. So, people can never shut off their conscious thought. And that's why they can't sleep. Yikes. Um, not even with drugs, not even with sleeping pills. Nothing can shut off this conscious thought because it starts eating into your thalamus. So it looks like Swiss cheese. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's genetically inherited and the genes trace back to parts of Europe. Specifically, the there's a, um, a Venetian doctor that it traces back to. I think it's the furthest known person who had it. Um, right. And he was in the late 18th century. So... But his, if you die within 10 months of getting this virus, but it's passed down genetically, how is it still possible? Right? It's because it's, it's an anomaly of a protein. So it's like the example that he uses in the book is this guy who was like really stressed. And so I've had a lot mm-hmm. of work stress, family stress, whatnot, and then eventually just couldn't sleep and then just didn't sleep for six months at all and died. Oh, my gosh. Like you have so it's like- no sleep. It's like you're predisposed for it. And then if something stressful happens, it can like trigger the change of the gene. Yeah. So it acts oh. for like a mutation kind of style Oh as my well. gosh, that's terrifying. Right? Wow. It makes you want to live a very soft, peaceful life because there's no way. I just would I like want my to thalamus just... looking like Swiss cheese. <laughs> I want to just sleep my life away for my cardiovascular and uh, pancreas health. So in brain yeah. health. Yeah. Oh, yikes. So fatal familial insomnia has unlocked a new fear in my mm-hmm. existence, which is fun. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. And then to wrap up this chapter, he talks about like um, how much sleep you actually need. Right. Okay. And so on average, you actually need only 6.75 hours of sleep for health. Um, but this is why the recommended sleep is seven to eight hours because some people spend time tossing and turning in bed. So you want the 6.75 hours of like sleep, sleep where you're hitting NREM and REM and going through the full cycle. Right. Um, But then there's also on the flip side, too much sleep, which he describes as nine plus hours um, is associated with an increase of infection and immune activating cancers. Uh, That's not like everything in life. There's balance. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's terrifying because I've been sleeping a lot, it feels like, but also not a lot. <laughs> that's really scary. Yeah. So do that as you will. I mean, having a couple days of a year where you're sleeping nine plus hours, I guess yeah. is okay, right? I sleep nine hours when I'm sick. 
right? Because mm. it's a healing factor for me. Well, one but, day you slept for like three days. Yeah. You went to bed Wednesday night and you woke up Friday morning. Yeah, but, or something but, like um, that. But later, yeah, I, I fell asleep Tuesday night and I woke up Thursday morning. Yeah. When I was sick one time, I fell into like a mini coma. But but it's also like, this is when you, I think that's your maintenance period, right? Like you yeah. wouldn't have slept for that long if you didn't need to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if you're sick and you're sleeping, like don't force yourself to wake up, listen to your body. But if yeah. you're sleeping nine plus hours on a regular basis, yeah, you could actually be um, impacting your immune system. I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> so now we get transitioned to chapter 13, which is iPads, factory whistles and nightcaps. And so Ooh. what things are stopping you from sleeping? Okay. So aside from long commute times and sleep procrastination, there are five factors that affect quality and length of our sleep. So the first one is constant electric and LED light. So artificial light tricks the brain to thinking that the sun hasn't set yet, messing up our natural light cues in the circadian rhythm. Mm -hmm. Um, Even a hint of dim light at eight to 10 lux has been shown to delay the release of melatonin. So even like the smallest dim light is like, mm -mm, nope, not bedtime yet. And then a study comparing reading a printed book versus reading on an iPad. Um, So reading an iPad actually suppressed melatonin release by 50%, delaying the rise of melatonin by three hours. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. See, that's, I I don't know. I can fall asleep reading anything. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Um, So the second uh, factor that affects quality of sleep is regularized temperature. So you actually want a cooler bedroom. Um, to help you fall into deep sleep. Mm-hmm. Caffeine usage, as Jubes talked about earlier. Alcohol, I guess that's four. Um, mm-hmm. Alcohol actually fragments your sleep, so it's not continuous and therefore not restorative. And it suppresses mm-hmm. your REM caused by aldehydes and ketones. Interesting. Right? And then the fifth one is the legacy of time-punching cards. So essentially that is referring to Industrial Revolution and how... We have been trained to be robots, even though our bodies are not robots. Um, so it's like the alarm clock lifestyle enforced by the Industrial Revolution because alarm clocks spike blood pressure to wake you up. And so they're startling. And then the snooze feature promotes the act of cardiovascular assault, quote unquote, oh. by allowing this repetition of like snoozing and spiking and having that forcing yourself to wake up when your body's not ready to wake up. I am going to change so much about how I live my life after this episode. And in that section, he then talks about um, some options of alternative alarm clock methods that are available. Um, Mm -hmm. So if you're interested in that, I would check that out for sure. Yeah. Um, Chapter 14 then dives more into kind of sleeping pills and therapy and all that. So... Once upon a time, sleeping pills were actually called sedative hypnotics. Oh, yep. Spicy. That's pretty much what they are. Yeah, so they it makes don't sense. induce. Yeah, exactly. So what they do is they don't induce proper sleep, but they rather knock out the higher regions of the brain's cortex. Uh, oh, so the electrical so, signals from these pills lack the largest, deepest brain waves, which is one of the part of their issues, um, and they can warrant rebound insomnia which is essentially you when you stop taking a pill, your insomnia actually gets worse than it was before you started taking the pill. 
So this oh. builds a dependency um, and that rebound insomnia is actually a withdrawal symptom of the pill. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Right? Wow. Um, so on page 285 in the book, he talked about a study that found out ambient-induced sleep caused a 50% weakening or unwiring of brain cell connections formed during learning. Meaning that although people fell asleep faster, not by a significant amount, um, they also wake up with fewer memories of yesterday. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Right? And then Dr. Daniel Kripke found that those who use sleeping pills are more likely to develop cancers and were 4.6 times likely, more likely to die within the two and a half year period. Whereas heavy use were 5.3 times more likely. And those who just dabbled already up there, um, they shortened their lifespan by 3.6%. Holy cow. Like so, or 3.6 times, sorry. So okay. even just like dabbling with sleeping pills, you're already, it's just, it's affecting your body heavily. That's insane. Right? Mm-hmm. So things you can use instead of sleeping pills. Um, Try, you can try cognitive behavioral behavioral therapy for insomnia. We know cognitive behavioral therapy for depression, anxiety, whatnot, but there is actually it for insomnia as well, which mostly focuses on reducing anxiety as anxiety thoughts are um, a common cause of insomnia. Right. You can reduce your caffeine or alcohol content, remove screen technology from your bedroom. This is where having TVs out of the bedroom is so important. Mm-hmm. Um, having a cool bedroom. Establishing a regular bedtime for yourself. Only going to the bedroom when you're tired. You ne- okay. never lie awake in bed for a significant period. Get up, go and do something else relaxing, and then go back to bed when you feel tired. Right. Um, avoid daytime napping if nighttime sleep is an issue. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And then reduce anxiety provoking stimulants. Hide visible clock faces to avoid clock watching at night. Mm-hmm. And then in the appendix on the back of the book, he does offer 12 sleep hygiene habits that if you're interested in, you can take a look there as well. So sleep hygiene as in like keeping your bed clean or like how to clean up your sleep? Both, I guess. Okay. Like some of it's like um, stick to a sleep schedule, exercise, avoid caffeine, avoid al- alcoholic drinks. So just all things that are lifestyle habits rather than like actual hygiene. But oh, okay. he calls it sleep hygiene. Right. Okay. Um, so chapter 15 is sleep in society. And so he starts this one off by saying that 65% of the U.S. population failed to reach the recommended seven to nine hours of sleep. And it, he dives into different factors of why that may be. Right. So under sleep in the workplace, um, currently in America or North America or most first world kind of societies, we overvalue employees that undervalue sleep. And so he's basically being like, why do we do this? It makes no sense. Because insufficient sleep can cost companies $2,000 per employee in loss of productivity or $3,500 for those that have serious lack of sleep. Wow. So think about something like a lawyer that is praised for working overtime and staying up late. Mm -hmm. But do you want a lawyer who is lacking sleep to be representing you? Right. As either an employee or as a lawyer, right? Because yeah. his brain's in functioning fully and he's actually um, less productive. Well, exactly. And he might die before your court date. Exactly. 
So, and then one one thing that's also fascinating here is that insufficient sleep actually robs most nations of more than 2% of their gross domestic product. Holy cow. Because of I this. feel like a pretty big percentage for that. Yeah, because wow. of this lack of productivity. That's so, insane. Yep. Because sleep-deprived in- individuals produce fewer and less accurate solutions to work-related problems. Underslept employees, six hours or less, are more likely to act defiantly and lie in the workplace. So an example of this is like faking reports. Mm-hmm. Think of police when you want to dive into that whole wow. side of things. Yeah, no um, doubt. Right? Studies have found that um, sleep-deprived CEOs can lead to poor productivity amongst employees, even if the employees are well-rested, because setting <sighs> a poor example or of leadership. Mm-hmm. And NASA has actually discovered that 26-minute naps leads to a 34% improvement on task performance and a 50% improvement on overall alertness. So we bring him back nap time. Yeah, CS does, baby. Nice. <laughs> and so maybe the Nordic countries have it right when you mm-hmm. when you're talking about the equal work and play method that they they have going on up there. Yeah, no doubt. Right. Uh, under society, the key point that I took away from this one is that there's a recent study showing that one night of sleep deprivation will double or quadruple the likelihood of an upstanding citizen to confess to something they haven't done. Yeah. So this is where the issue you can find in confessions or fake confessions, or um, there's also education level in regards to confessions that are all problematic within the judicial system. Yeah. And that's why there are so many people who are wrongfully convicted Convicted. of crimes they did not commit. So. I wrong or I falsely confessed to a crime that I didn't commit. Did you? How I told the story? Yeah. No. <laughs> it's not an actual crime. Um, my brother cut my sheets and then my mom was like, why'd you cut your sheets? But she thought I did it because it was in my room and it was my bed and he used my scissors. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know. Like I might've, like, I don't remember doing that, but like maybe <laughs> I did. And so I fully like took responsibility for it, even though I knew full well, I didn't do it. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I still never got those scissors back. That's funny. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so the next the next subcategory is education. So in this one, he basically talks about like how the circadian rhythm changes and how kids actually need more sleep and da 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 da. So therefore mm-hmm. school time should actually start later to align with adoles- adolescence, like the biological clock. Yeah. So later start times in schools have um contributed to an increased learning and productivity amongst students. Nice. So, and kids need more sleep for proper development. So therefore a lack of sleep contributes to mental health problems amongst adolescents. Mm -hmm. And it's now estimated that 50% of all children with ADHD um, actually have a sleep disorder and it's not ADHD. Oh, interesting. But it's a sleep disorder mimicking ADHD symptoms. Right. And then under healthcare is the last category in this section. Um, And he talks about how long hours in hospitals are problematic. And so some residents in the U.S. are required to work 30-hour shifts. And so those on those shifts will commit 36% more medical errors, and they will make 460% more diagnostic mistakes mistakes in intensive care. One out of 20 residents will kill a patient due to lack of sleep. Vehicle accidents after 
rates of a long shift rise to 168% because of exhaustion. Oh my god! if you're under the knife of a surgeon that wasn't allowed to sleep properly, there is a 170% chance the surgeon will inflict a serious surgical error on you. <laughs> I hate that. So but it's choice. also like, no duh. Um, mm. People need to sleep. Like, why are we expecting doctors and surgeons to stay mm. up for so long when we know that it's detrimental? And like at 22 hours of sleep deprivation, it's equivalent to being someone who is legally drunk. So yeah. they're working a 30, they're working eight hours on top of that. I, okay, my hypochondriacness has just been running rampant and this is oh. not helping. Oh no. <laughs> so if you have the choice, ask how much uh, the sleep is doctor. Wow. How much sleep the doctor has had before you do anything major medical wise. Oh my so. gosh. And this wraps up to chapter 16, which is a vision for new sleep. So basically he talks about what he hopes sleep to do and how you can take these concepts and move on with your life. Um, So he offers the idea that rather than fighting against technology to try to use technology to help promote sleep. So turning on things like night mode or using smart thermostats to cool down the temperature in your house at night. And then same with waking up. Right. Um, Promote education on sleep and shift the workplace structure. so. That aligns with sleep science. Mm-hmm. So more time at work does not equate to productivity. So so fun. Yeah. So as expected, this is a long episode. I know, but it's so interesting. Mm-hmm. That's what we got. Yeah. I highly recommend this book. Yeah. I love everything about it. The topics. It was interesting read. It was, for me, it was easy to read, but I also mm-hmm. have a baseline of the vocabulary that is used within it but yeah yeah he definitely writes at like a university level um Mm -hmm. standard i guess but it's not that hard to digest yeah but that's coming from two women with university degrees so yeah take that as you will (laughs) if you want to check out our boy matthew walker it's his book why we sleep unlocking the power of sleep and dreams yeah we'll have it linked in our book club review section on our website Mm-hmm. Um, and if you read this I want to hear what you have to say yeah if you guys have any thoughts about this or you're studying sleep yourself let us know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so but fun with that well, uh, I'm Mac Joy I'm It's Jupes we are Sometimes Shabbat Slaps on all social media platforms our website is sometimesshabbatslaps.com where you can find our episode links our book club reviews our affiliate links we got mm-hmm. a handful of those now which is nice and fun yeah and um our social medias are just our lives sometimes we post random stuff and sometimes we post relevant to the podcast so if you want to know updates on who we are what we're doing xyz you can find us yeah there. exactly and if you like us or if you like what we're doing give us a like on whatever platform you're hearing this uh, YouTube, subscribe, bell icon, all of that um, on audio, rating, reviews. Yeah. Everything helps us. And we appreciate you dearly if you do so. Much love. Much love. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, ta-ta for now, I guess. Ta-ta for now. Bye. Bye. See you next Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>